This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by our political correspondent, Lucy Fisher, Isabel Hardman, assistant editor of The Spectator, and columnist, David Aronovich. On Monday, a new Cash for Access scandal exploded after MPs Jack Straw and Sir Malcolm Rifkind were caught out offering their influence and contacts in exchange for money. The revelation looks set to erode further voters' faith in politics and it will benefit only the likes of UKIP and the Greens at the polls in May. The scandal has also sparked a row about MP second jobs, on which many people are now calling for a cap, if not an outright ban. The Church of England is now locked into a face-off with the Conservative Party. The bishops probably didn't mean to offend the Tories so much with their letter last week, but they did, partly by being so naive about complex issues such as defence, and partly by being mealy-mouthed about the recovery. But the Tories also didn't need to get so upset about what the bishops wrote, if indeed they read it. It included a defence of markets and of the big society, something the church has held on to long after David Cameron decided to pretend it didn't exist as a Tory concept. Still, both sides are now so suspicious of the other that they are incapable of listening. Something needs to break the impasse, as both could learn from one another. The sudden departure of three teenage girls for Turkey and thence probably to Syria clearly took their parents and their families by terrible surprise. Their incomprehension was obvious and poignant. But although it was an extreme example by any standards, it had parallels to another story of the week, the sudden descent of a bright teenage boy into depression and then to suicide. This tragedy too came at a moment when we were becoming worried by mental health services for our youngsters. Is this new? Are our kids stranger to us than they were, or was it always like this? Okay, well, two people who aren't strangers to us anymore are Lucy and Isabel. Thank you. This is your first uh, podcast with us, and we're really glad to have you with our converse- in our conversation. Um, Lucy, can I start um, with you, please? I'm someone who always likes to try and defend politicians from the idea that the parliament is sleaze-ridden. And then you hear stories like we've had in the last couple of days with Jack Straw and Malcolm Rifkind, and it, it really knocks your confidence. You really feel, my goodness, how many of them do really understand how badly they are seen by the public? How big a deal for the image of politics is this, do you think? 
I think it's a huge deal and in fact the timing just couldn't be worse. We're less than three months from a general election and this is a row that is probably going to run, I think. What's particularly disappointing is exactly five years ago uh, in 2010, again before the last general election, we had exactly the same sting run by Channel 4 dispatches which caught out uh, Jeff Hoon and Stephen Byers offering their uh, influence You really thought the cash. parliamentarians would have learnt by now that these strange companies we would, turning we would. were probably a sting. But I, I think you're right to say that it, it's partially um, an image problem. I mean, even if the reality is they're found not to have broken any rules, the perception is that they were greedy, there's something mucky about offering... Um, contacts and a position that they've gained from elected office mm. for private gain uh, and selling that to a private company. Yeah. And is it also just you you mentioned in your introduction that people are again calling for a ban on second jobs. It isn't just the sleaze. It's the idea that lots of people think MPs get paid £67,000 a year. They should be working full time for their constituents. And hearing talk of £5,000 a day fees for people the average income in the UK is only about twenty-three or £24,000. It seems like the political class are just in another world. It's, it's almost that basic for people. Absolutely. It totally plays into this idea that uh, MPs are part of this Westminster elite who are totally out of touch. You know, to, to play devil's advocate, I actually find David Cameron's defence of second jobs as being potentially enriching for, um, for Parliament quite compelling. If we have GPs or people who run uh, a small family business bringing that experience to bear in the Commons, that's useful. But as Rachel Sylvester uh, pointed out today... In, it, in Tuesday's Times. In Tuesday's yeah. Times, the direction can flow just as easily the other way. People are using the, the, the perks of being in Parliament for their second jobs mm. rather than the other way around. Isabel um, Hardman, assistant editor of The Spectator, this whole debate about second jobs, the public also complain that politics is full of people who only ever do politics and don't understand the real world, and then they don't want them to have these outside jobs. Can they win? Well, I think also the public's opposition to a pay rise for MPs means that MPs or people who have had experience outside of Parliament may not want to enter Parliament because of the pay cut. Now, it's very easy to be very sort of puritanical about this and to say, oh, you shouldn't mind the pay cut. But, but some people do mind the pay cut. Some people have families that they want to keep, as Malcolm Rifkin rather clumsily said yesterday, at a sort of standard of living that they've become accustomed to. And I think if people want to have better MPs and they have to accommodate for human nature to a certain extent, pe people want to be comfortable. And if they've grown used to being comfortable in business because they've become successful, then you might not be surprised that they don't want to move into Parliament, which is also a very dysfunctional place to work, mm. as well as being quite poorly paid compared to a lot of... And I, I think the statistics are something like two-thirds to three-quarters of people who enter Parliament, their income falls by becoming an MP. And I suppose from a lot of jobs it would fall even if you gave them a pay rise to something like £80,000. You'd still have a pay cut if you left the charity sector, for instance. If you had been a chief executive, you'd expect quite a hefty pay cut mm. to go into Parliament. So there has to be a sort of public service motivation there. But the problem is, is that politicians are so afraid of voters because of the expenses scandal and because of clumsy comments sometimes by MPs when they're trying to defend themselves, like Malcolm Rifkin yesterday, talking about... £67,000 not being really the, the right sort of pay and, and talking about the standard of living to which he's entitled to, that politicians never try to make the case for reform of their pay or for reform of second jobs. And you end mm. up with Ed Miliband saying we're going to cap second jobs but not raise pay, which is probably yeah. the worst of all mm. worlds. David 
Aronovich, one thing that was uh, said by Evan Davis on Monday night's um, Newsnight was actually there's two kinds of second jobs. There's GPs, there's dentists, there's things that most of the public would think that's fine, but then there are the jobs that the likes of Malcolm Rifkin and Jack Straw are apparently being recruited for, which was the lobbying jobs, and those are not acceptable. Do you accept that distinction as uh, real? No, no, not really. I mean, uh, plenty of people are directors of companies. Uh, I've been dealing with an academic who, uh, for a piece that I've been writing, who is big in genomics, genomic sciences, and he is also the director of his own company as well as being CEO. And I think the kind of idea that you can draw some sort of line between valuable directorships and advisorships and unvaluable ones means that you can have some bureaucrats sat in the House of Commons running their finger down which what is considered to be a proper job and what isn't. Uh, what's interesting to me is that this kind of fishing expedition by uh, news organisations, and Channel 4 do it periodically, usually in order to coincide with an election, by the way, which is why we've, uh, why we've got it now, mm. I gather they fished 12 got to. Pure fishing expedition because I don't believe they had any particular reason for thinking that these particular people would say yes to yes to these things. Procured the story and got it. I think that had Rifkind not said, I have a lot of free time, and had Jack Straw not used the phrase under the radar, probably Channel 4 News, uh, Channel 4, sorry, dispatches might have thought they didn't quite have the story. Mm. Um, and so they you're, not that have gone, you're not that appalled well, these by are, it, really? These are, these are two, I mean, these are, in Rifkind and Straw, you're talking about two people who could command a significant amount of money outside common, outside the commons. They're both very bright guys, uh, very, very experienced and so on, and you would uh, rely upon their expertise. There are MPs in the commons who are not worth £67,000. They're so stupid. Um, now, it is necessary sometimes that we have very stupid people to represent uh, other stupid people. That's absolutely, that's absolutely fine, and I'm, I'm, I'm not against that. But what I am against is pretending that what Malcolm Rifkin said about the £67,000 salary is not true because it palpably is true. But he did he did say, and you know, nobody employs me within that interview, didn't he? He does. I don't have any. No, no, that's what I mean. Yeah. That, yeah, that's is what that... I mean. That's what I mean about the kind of level of unfortunate quotes, which immediately takes you from the legalistics of it. Did they do anything wrong? Into the dreadful thing. It's perception that matters. As soon as somebody says it's perception that matters, it's it is both more, true it's and it's fraudulent. It's a bit more than perception, though, David. Kim Howes, the former head of the intelligence committee that Malcolm Rifkind, as we are recording, at least still chairs. I mean, he said this was a full time job, you know, the volume of material that he has to go through to really scrutinise the intelligence services. We know we don't need to rehearse the reasons why the intelligence services are in the news at the moment. And here you have Malcolm Rifkind talking so, to a firm that is based in China. Sure, so what are we saying here? Are, are we saying that Rifkind actually was trying to defraud this fraudulent Japanese Chinese company because he didn't have the time that he said he did? Well, or are we saying that we don't think he spent sufficient time on being chair of the intelligence uh, subcommittee, uh, which as far as I know is not an accusation that anybody has so far made about him? Well, I think Kim Howes is certainly suggesting no, that this Kim is... House, Kim Howes has said it's damaging for the committee's reputation to have be associated with this after all the and work he that he... He, he felt that it's a full-time job that should have a full-time focus. Lucy? I just think it's not, it's not only a question of, of money and perhaps the perception of um, Rifkind and Straw being venal and greedy, but also this idea that by saying I've got all this free time, it really, there's a more nuanced sort of problem here whereby MPs are suggesting that they're bored with their jobs, you know, that it's the arrogance sort of, mm. well, I've got these little people, um, you know, to represent. And when you look at their voting records, I mean, I think both Storm Rifkin 
both have attended less than 55% of votes uh, in the last year. It's, it's, not a great, um, it's not a great look. And do you agree, um, Isabel Hardman, with Lucy's point, this is a huge gift to, to UKIP, when we can put aside at the moment the number of UKIP MEPs that have got into financial difficulties in Strasbourg. But mm. um, is, if Nigel Farage was sort of writing the script, they're slipping a little bit in some opinion polls at the moment, but this is the story he would want to be on the front page of the Daily Telegraph and other newspapers. Yes, this is very convenient. It's come a very good time for UKIP as well. As you say, they have been slipping in the polls recently and they've also had their own awkward television programme broadcast last night as well. On so Monday night. On Monday yeah, night yeah. as well. So, so that's quite helpful. It's also beneficial for the Greens and for the SNP. Any party that pitches itself as an anti-politics party benefits from that. And that's why MPs are so angry about this. They're so frustrated with Straw and Rifkin for, for stumbling into this trap and I think Straw particularly seemed very frustrated on Monday when he was talking about it because they know that this feeds into the impression which is often as you said at the start of this Tim completely wrong that MPs are somehow have got their snouts in the trough and that they don't care about their constituents I think the point that Lucy makes about the voting records and the impression of of not caring about your constituents who who are the, the, the primary reason you're in parliament is also hugely damaging. It's just entirely the, the wrong time from a mainstream party's point of view for mm. this scandal to erupt and a great time for the, the smaller okay. parties. I mean, I, I was going to say one thing. I mean, the, one of the things that this shows is we're all forced in a way to say some of these things and so on. And of course, we, we, we kind of mean them. But, but if we're not careful, we become pious about it. Actually, we require a whole series of things in the House of Commons, and one of the things we don't always require is MPs who think that somehow or other being an MP is the most wonderful thing you could ever possibly be, and only saints should do it. Uh, I don't believe that, and I'm, I actually reject this notion that somehow or other MPs should be subject to standards that we don't set for ourselves. I think it's hypocritical for us to demand it, and in the end, unrealistic, and what it gets you is canting hypocrites instead of people who actually have good judgment. Don't, don't we expect more of the people we elect to these positions? Well, we trust, why why should I expect more from somebody else than I expect from myself? Why you're should not, I? You're not standing for public office to it represent matter. people. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a question for all of us, not just a question for uh, MPs. To suggest that somehow or other they belong to some other kind of genus of human being better than us <laughs> by virtue of standing for public office is ridiculous and it's actually childish. OK, well, talking of people that better than all of us, we must move to our second topic in the House of Bishops, which is, um, Isabel, it's your um, topic for us. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave a speech on Saturday in which he looked like he had perhaps reflected a bit on the events of last week and went out of his ways to praise the A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Government in a number of respects on the aid budget, on the creation of jobs, on William Hague's campaign against rape in war. Is it perhaps also time, I think you're hinting at this, for the Conservative Party to reflect a little bit on its overreaction? To the yes. bishop's letter. Yes, I think we've ended up in quite a tribal situation here where as soon as members of the Conservative Party hear that the Church of England has said something, they say, oh, we disagree with that before finding out what it is that the Church has actually <laughs> said. And the, the, the letter that the bishops issued last week did have some interesting things in it about Trident and that sort of thing, which some Conservatives might feel was naive. But some of the th- they were made. they were very sceptical about the value of it being recommissioned. Yes, yeah. yes, and also it was rather mealy-mouthed about uh, about jobs, given that actually throughout this recovery, the, the jobs recovery has been miraculous. The, the way the church wrote about it suggested that we were still sort of seeing long dole queues. Mm. But I, I think that the problem for the church is that it does let itself down with slightly... Um, naive and lefty sounding assertions when it wants to be a church it doesn't want to be the conservative party doesn't want to be the church of england neither does the labor party and the church of england certainly doesn't want to be the conservative party at prayer it should be a church where people from from all different political creeds come and realize that those creeds are, are as flawed as they are but but i think the problem is is that they're framing themselves in quite a a lefty way at the moment which feeds into the desire by Tories to not listen to them and it's important for the Conservatives mm. to listen to them They've, we've got bishops in the House of Lords if they don't want to listen to the bishops then they should get rid, rid of the bishops from the House of Lords which I suspect <laughs> I as Conservatives might, they don't want to do some, some might be more tempted to do that <laughs> and Justin Welby have you noticed him making a difference he had a very good press at the start of his mm. time at Lambeth Palace with his initiative and Wonga etc my, my worry is that he's just become we've, we've heard his views on food banks We've heard his views on um, the general position of the economy, certainly on banking. It's almost like he's becoming a social commentator rather than necessarily a leader of the Anglican Church. Is there a question of whether he's getting the balance right? I suspect that's partly because we're more likely to report the comments he makes on politics than we are the comments he makes about the church. And his, 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 his Lenten talks aren't getting a lot of coverage <laughs> in the newspapers. His sermons probably aren't being picked up quite... As often, he's giving a, a talk next week on evangelism, I believe, and he also gave a very good talk when he went to New York about the need for the Church of England to dispense with claptrap, which I think is going to keep him busy for quite a few years if he's really serious Yes, you, you wrote that. a thunder about that. Yes. I should say, for all Times subscribers listening to um, this podcast, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, I'll link to that uh, piece by Isabel and also some articles to other background reading. David Aronovich, are you impressed with the um, the church's comments on social policy or you have you waded through the bishop's letter? No, no, no. Uh, like most other people who enjoy anything trilopian, uh, I love <laughs> the five-yearly row between the Conservative Party and the Church of England uh, and between sort of different parts of the establishment. Of course, I'm another part of the establishment, so, so it's easy for me to sort of... Who's part of the establishment are you? The journalistic establishment? I'm part of the journalistic yeah. establishment. The how, times, could, yeah. how could I be? How could I be less, more so than I am? So I enjoy it when other parts of the establishment round. So when the Conservative Party and the bishops have their uh, have their, it is, it is a funny thing how sensitive the Conservative Party appears to be 
just to the Church of England. It doesn't seem to care about the Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't seem to care about what imams might be preaching about politics, let's say, as opposed to anything else. It doesn't seem to care about you know, what the chief rabbi is up to. Miss Margaret Thatcher did, but nobody else does. But it really cares about the bishops. And the thing that I find odd about it, and I know, Isabel, that you and Tim are going to find this uh, tricky, but, but Phil Collins and I were discussing just this point uh, the other day. It always seemed to me that Jesus was obviously a social democrat. When you boil it right down, you look at what he says ethically and the way in which he should behave. I don't mean he's an extreme social democrat or anything like that, but nevertheless, he is a social democrat. He doesn't sit well with the parties of big business and the parties of corporate capitalism uh, and so on, uh, and, the, and, and, and the paying of less than the minimum wage and cleaners coming in for next to no money in the morning, etc. He sits with the other side. Now, that's not a political party thing. That is just a kind of general thing. And I'm always surprised that Conservatives don't understand this. Uh, but then I'm an atheist. Well, you're getting into some massive discussion, but all I would say at this point, Mr Aronovich, <laughs> is we were commanded to love our neighbour. We weren't commanded to get the state to love our neighbour for us. And in the job creation and being good parents, good teachers, we have personal responsibilities to... But we got the to state the... to do it for us partially because we weren't that good at it, Tim. And we, we, are, we are much better at it than the state. And if you see any children in care and their life chances, you'll know how good a state apparent the status. I don't want to get into a full discussion about whether Jesus was a socialist or a capitalist but um, Lucy can I return you to some of the, the politics of this because um, one thing that's interesting is if you look at um, opinion polls of Anglicans they are more conservative mm-hmm. than the rest of the population so perhaps the Church of England is still the Tory party at prayer in, in some respects but the The bishops continue to have this sort of uh, semi-hostility to the Conservative Party. Do you think, it's clearly not impacting even Anglican churchgoers, but do you think there's a sort of, it fits into this unease that the Conservative Party is, as David's implying really, a party of big business and the the wealthy, and the church is reminding people that there's something not quite right in the Tory message? It's a difficult one. I think certainly uh, you're right, the, the implication of your comment is that perhaps the bishops are slightly more left-leaning than the congregations, which I think is borne out by research. Not as left-leaning as David Aronovich, but yes, a bit left-leaning. <laughs> Not as much as David Aronovich, <laughs> right. But, um, I mean, last night I was looking up some research by YouGov last year, which showed that 75% of Church of England uh, congregants believe that benefits lead to uh, a culture of dependency, which uh, is a statement that less than a third uh, of Anglican clergy believe. Mm. So I think mm. that there is this sort of tension between yeah. um, between the clergy and congregations. And yeah, I think it's understandable in a way that many conservative politicians uh, are angry. And interestingly, it's some of the most committed Christian conservatives who, who are angriest uh, of the lot. I mean, understandably, Ian Duncan Smith, who is a Christian, has not been particularly happy at the church's rather rather extraordinary overt comments about mm. welfare, mm. in my opinion. But then there were other Christian MPs, like Steve Baker, who's, who's my local MP, he's a Christian, who uh, spent a while reading the report and tweeted a couple of days later saying, I find it very di- difficult to disagree with very much in it. Mm. Um, it was so, quite platitudinous, actually. If there yes. was a criticism that you could make of it, it was that. Well, and there the was quite a lot of... About, so. <laughs> 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 it's not the Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> well... Let's move on to our uh, third topic. Thank you, Isabel, and thank you, Lucy, as well. It's been great to have you on the podcast today. Um, David, your topic reflects on two stories that we've had in recent days. One, the very tragic suicide of a young man, which seems to be 
a story of that kind we're seeing more and more in our um, in our papers. And then the other was this uh, story of these three girls travelling through Turkey to, to Syria. And you're wondering, do we know our children as the way we yeah, once I, did? I, I did. I mean, What's uh, your answer to your question? I mean, both these t- uh, stories have been treated as if they're entirely separate and entirely discreet, partially, beca- obviously, because of what Islamic State represents and because of our fears of radicalisation and so on, which are, which are justified. Uh, and also... Uh, on the other side, because of the argument which there is now, not so much a kind of argument, but soul-searching about what support it is that we give for um, uh, teenagers in particular who are suffering mental health problems. And it struck me that in both these cases, what was really interesting, the case both of the boy who committed suicide, who was a grade-A student, bright future, etc., etc., and these three girls who were genuinely, I think, described by their families as one of, one of those girls was still sharing a bed with her mother until it sort of... Uh, mm very recently it's a real kind of mummy's girl and so on is that all of a sudden the parents were confronted with children they didn't even know they had and this seems to be something it may have always been true to a certain extent and i'm i'm struck by in andrew solomon's great book far from the tree about kids who aren't anything like their parents or are are become things their parents scarcely recognize but it is one of the kind of big anxieties i think of the modern era the speed with which we discover uh, as parents our children are i don't know whether children those who are younger than me identify more with if you like the kind of the teenagers who, who, who 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 have suddenly become something else but it is a kind of continuous theme at the moment when you put it together about this worry about what's happening to the young and whether we know them Mm. and how big is the internet becoming an alternative parent for people because certainly in the case of the radicalization a lot of young uh, british muslims and their journey towards isis the internet seemed to play a massive role and how much is the pressures of facebook and this photographic culture that so many young people are immersed in how much does that create well, pressure amount, on I mean, people but, 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 well the question is how much it does and how much we fear it does and whether those two mm. things are the same um it is certainly it adds to their unknowability this incredible continent out there of social media and context and influences which you cannot even see in the house unless you're actually prepared to spy upon mm. your children in a way that you never really used to have to before the era of the mobile phone and of the computer i mean okay maybe your kid would go out of the door in the morning and do something and not come back until evening we all remember stories about the you know the teenagers who wouldn't turn up until two three four o'clock in the morning you didn't know where they'd mm. been uh, and so on but you knew at that point that you had a problem yeah you knew at the point when they weren't coming back now you can have the problem without even knowing you've got the problem until something absolutely terrible and appalling happens. Because it can work the other way, can't it, Lucy, in the sense if you... pre-internet if you like if you were a misfit in your village or your town and nobody quite believed or had the same interests as you well now through the internet you can find the community where you fit in so this new world of social media can work for good as well as for ill. Certainly I think that's that's true I have to admit I'm I'm just a little bit skeptical about how much people really connect over social media seems like there's a lot of sort of lonely teenagers communicating online but not really connecting in the way that perhaps young people have previously and i certainly think you know with things like facebook people curating this image of their perfect lives that can certainly compound feelings of alienation mm. in people who Because people only really misfits. post their beautiful pictures of up course. there don't they and of course <laughs> everyone thinks that i don't always look like that yes, so. yes. 
So I think maybe it, it, it leads to a wider swathe of, of people feeling like they don't really belong or, or, they're, or they're not sort of living the life that, mm. that everyone else is living. And it, Isabel Hardman? Well, there's also a debate about how, as, as David was saying, how sort of intrusive are you as a parent? There are some parents who think that sort of monitoring your child's internet usage is the same as locking your door at night. It's just a, a matter of basic safety. But then there are others who say, no, that's like reading their diary or mm. something mm. like that. But... When, when I was a teenager, we had a computer in our dining room and that was the family computer. But now all teenagers have their own smartphones. So it's very difficult to, to know what they're accessing at, at any time. That must be incredibly worrying for a parent who wants to protect their child, but who doesn't want to mollycoddle them so they're completely innocent mm. in the world. And also a parent who, who, even if they knew what they were accessing, wouldn't necessarily know what to make of it. And even then, the conjecture about what the influence of it would be. Going back to the radicalised, or the radicalised girls... As far as we know, they weren't in any significant amount of physical contact, apart from with each other, with anybody who could have gotten to Syria. There has been this previous previous shot. It it then turns out that one of them has several thousand Twitter followers herself, which is actually not an inconsiderable number. And it becomes increasingly clear that there has been a kind of shadow life actually has existed Mm. um, for these kids, and they then influence each other. For the parent, however... Out of the blue. Well, we scratched the surface of um, that topic, but I'm afraid we've run out of time for today. So thank you very much, David Aronovich, Isabel Hardman, Lucy Fisher. Thank you very much to Dave Maguire, my producer. Most of all to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.